Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. I'm your host, Robert Darden. Welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. It was a cold, dreary morning on Saturday, January 22, 1927. A group of 21 student-athletes from Baylor University left Waco for Austin for a men's basketball game against the University of Texas. They were in good spirits and looking forward to the competition. But they never made it to their destination. While crossing railroad tracks in Round Rock, the bus was hit by a train, and the result was heartbreaking. Ten students died that day. It was one of the greatest tragedies in the history of intercollegiate sports in Texas. Join me as I talk with Austin freelance writer Hans Christensen about this poignant incident in Baylor University history, the story of the immortal ten. Welcome back to the show, Hans. Thanks, Robert. It's always great to be on the show for a new season. Now, before we dive into the crash, let's talk a bit about the various people who were on the bus that day, including head coach Ralph Wolf. 1927 was his first year at the helm of the varsity basketball team. Yes, it was, but Wolf was no stranger to Baylor or athletics. He was a 1921 alumnus and a three-sport letter winner in football, basketball, and track, where he held conference records for the 100, 200, and 440-yard dashes. Wow. After Wolf graduated, he held several positions in the Baylor athletic programs, including five years as a trainer for the football team. And he also enjoyed stints as the head track coach and head coach of the men's freshman basketball team. Wolf was often described as a mild-mannered coach, but with a competitive streak, and he also had a suave style. He <laughs> favored bow ties and coat pocket handkerchiefs. Nice. And this trip to Austin was the first road trip of the season, but Wolf wasn't sure if he was going to be able to accompany the team. You see... His wife was pregnant and due at any time. But in the end, he decided to travel with the team to Austin. Oh, so sad. So tell us about some of the other passengers on the bus, if you will. Well, there's not enough time to talk in depth about all 21 passengers, but I can share a few details about some of the passengers. There were several boys from Waco, including junior starting guard Robert Hanna Jr. and senior guard William Winchester, who also substituted at center, along with junior Clyde... Abe Kelly, a substitute forward, and finally junior Ware Washam, who played as a backup on the team. Junior starting forward Kiefer Strickland had previously lived in Waco before attending high school in Hazard, Kentucky. And there were two players from Gatesville, junior forward James Walker and junior Willis Murray, the team's manager and substitute forward. Senior Jack Castellaw served as the team's official scorekeeper. There was also Fort Worth native and junior Sam Dillo, who played starting guard, and sophomore Robert Haley, who substituted at guard. And finally, other passengers included equipment manager Ed Gooch and managing editor of the Baylor student newspaper, Dave Chevens. What's interesting is that many of these players also logged double time on the football team. 
So in all, there were 21 passengers on the bus, which would have made for a rather tight fit. Well, the key thing, I guess, is who was responsible for driving the bus that day? Well, at that time, the university couldn't afford to hire a professional driver. So instead, freshman Joe Potter had earned the job as bus driver earlier in the year. Potter was an outstanding fullback on the freshman football team, and the bus driving gig helped pay for his way at Baylor. By the time they left for Austin on that blistery morning, Potter had already logged many miles piloting various Baylor teams around the state. So what was a road trip to Austin typically like in 1927? I suspect it's not like it is today. Well, it was a lot different than it is today. Transportation in 1927 um, was much different than what current Baylor athletes are accustomed to. There are no air-conditioned coach buses or chartered flights. In fact, Baylor owned a parlor bus purchased from the REO Motor Car Company a few years earlier. It measured approximately 8 feet wide by 25 foot long with a narrow aisle. There were two columns of wicker chairs anchored to the wooden floor and cloth drapes hung across the windows. I would say on a typical road trip to Austin, players could expect at least a three-hour ride since the bus only averaged a speed of 35 to 40 miles per hour on the terrible roads of those days. Well, from your research, Hans, do we know anything about the mood of the team or anything like that in the hours leading up to the game? Well, when the team left Waco for Austin, they were looking for a jump start to the season. In the preseason, Baylor had been favored to win the Southwest Conference due to the fact that they had all five starters returning. However, the Bears had lost their first three conference games, and to make matters worse, the losses all occurred on their home court. Ooh. So this game against UT was going to be their chance to turn the season around and gain some revenge. In fact, the team had lost previously to UT by a whopping score of 22 to 15. Ooh. I guess the other critical factor was the weather. What was it like on that day? It was a cold January day. A norther had just blown in, and the temperature was dropping toward freezing, and mist and fog peppered the landscape. Records show the team got off to an early start, though, with everyone piling into the bus around 8.30 a.m. Now, I've read a lot about the Immortal Ten, and there's some confusion, at least there is to me. Some accounts say that it started out with 21 passengers, but some reports talk about 22 passengers when they actually have the crash. What do you know about that? Well, the funny thing is that both numbers are really correct. When the bus left Waco, there were only 21 passengers, but when they reached Temple, they picked up a hitchhiker named Ivy Foster Jr. He was a freshman football and basketball player who decided to hitchhike down to Austin for the game. Wow. And since the weather was so miserable, and he was a fellow Baylor student after all, the team invited him onto the bus. And by that I mean literally on the bus. It was so crowded that he had to stand on the running board. Oh. But after a few miles, Ed Gooch took pity on the freshman and offered him his seat. And by a strange happenstance, this gesture would ultimately save Gooch's life, but cost Foster his own. Oh, man. Now, I know it's not fun to talk about the graphic details, and we're not going to do that. But even after all these years, it has become something of a defining moment, at least in my mind, in Baylor history. What can you tell us, what can you recreate after all these years about the actual crash itself? Well, the group had been traveling for more than three and a half hours when they finally reached Round Rock. The weather had gotten progressively worse along the way, and the windshield was covered in mud and mist from the intermittent rain. Potter followed the highway through the business section of town and approached a railroad crossing. It was an open crossing, one that most local people were familiar with. But Potter did not realize the railroad crossing was there since he had never driven this route before. Okay. And, you know, his in unfamiliarity with the highway, coupled with bad weather had caused him to slow down to around 20 miles per hour. 
As the bus approached the railroad tracks, he was unaware that the Sunshine Special, a northbound passenger train, was moving fast from the west. The Sunshine Special was behind schedule, so the train's engineer was really cooking. The train was going approximately 60 miles per hour as it approached the bus. The bus was nearly at the tracks, about 100 feet away when Coach Wolf noticed a speeding train. He yelled, look out! All right, here's a $60,000 question. Why didn't they stop? Well, you know, everyone kind of figures um, that Potter thought about stopping, but since there was so much water on the road, he decided just to accelerate it and try to beat the train. And with 20 feet to go, it was obvious he couldn't make it, so he cut hard left and tried to make it over the tracks at an angle in front of the train. At this point, several boys jumped or were thrown out of the bus as it started to pass over the tracks. And actually, most of the bus um, had cleared the tracks when the train slammed into the rear end, completely destroying the vehicle. In all, 10 of the passengers died from the accident. Jack Castella, Sam Dillo, Merle Dudley, Ivy Foster Jr., Robert Haley, Robert Hanna Jr., Abe Kelly, Willis Murray, James Walker, and William Winchester. That's, that's just horrible. So can we recreate what happened right after the crash, or, or do we know? We do know. Um, local residents immediately began to help the survivors. Some doctors arrived at the scene, and the survivors were taken into the station to be tended to. And as the bodies were identified and survivors, survivors accounted for, everyone was placed in a baggage car of the Sunshine Special and taken to nearby Taylor for medical treatment. Two of the injured students were transported to a hospital in Georgetown, but unfortunately they died there. And even though this was long before the age of Twitter and Facebook, news of the tragedy quickly spread out to the various news services and throughout Texas. Once everyone arrived in Taylor, the injured students were transported to the Physicians and Surgeons Hospital for treatment. The dead were taken to a nearby funeral home. And another sad part of the story involves a local laundry owner who joined the volunteers in transporting bodies. And anyone listening to this broadcast who is a parent will especially identify with the owner. As they were moving the fourth victim, the businessman realized it was his son, Ivy Foster Jr., the boy who had been previously hitchhiking to Austin. As you can imagine, he was devastated at the sight of his son's lifeless body. My God, that's unbelievable. Well, eventually, the rest of the students left Taylor on a train back to Waco. They arrived to a waiting crowd around 6 o'clock in the evening, and I'm sure it was a long, somber ride back to Baylor. How did the university and the community react to the news? It just must have been devastating. It was devastating. It was, it was difficult for everyone. You know, at that time, Baylor was a relatively small university, around 1,500 students. Okay. And it was an intimate place where students kind of knew one another. Over the next week, several funerals were held throughout Texas, and Baylor hosted a memorial service that drew more than 3,000 people. Mm. During the service, local businesses closed for an hour at the request of a mayoral proclamation, and the city's telephone system even shut down. Flags flew at half-staff, and local schools left out at 2 p.m. And to a grieving audience, University President Samuel Brooks offered these words. They were our boys. They can't know how much we love them. They were our boys. They can't know how much we loved them. Wow, that's so powerful. Obviously, I guess the entire state of Texas reacted the same way. Yes, that that following Monday, the Texas House of Representatives immediately passed a resolution drafted by Baylor alumnus and state legislator Robert Pogue that described the immortal ten as worthy in every way to be acclaimed true sons of those great spirits who died at the Alamo and Goliad. The flag flying over the Capitol was also lowered to the half-staff position. Something good did come out of this terrible accident, though. 
Right. The tragedy also served as a rallying point for railroad safety in the state, which was obviously long, needed. Long overdue. Yes. Um, the Texas House of Representatives Speaker Lee Bobbitt wanted to pass a bill that would require automatic safety devices placed at all railroad crossings. And he was joined by two other representatives, Ray Stout of Ennis and Roscoe Mungy of Mason, who drafted a bill that included eliminating grade crossings and building overpasses throughout the state. Unfortunately, the bill did not have the support of Texas Governor Dan Moody, and I'm not sure why, but it eventually stalled out. It would actually take eight years before an overpass was built over the railroad tracks in Round Rock. Oh, that's... Over the years, it seems like many of the survivors were not comfortable talking about the tragedy. Yeah, you know, it seems like it was a bittersweet memory for most of them. Obviously, they were thankful to be alive, but at the heavy cost of their friends and teammates. Still one of the survivors, Dave Chevens, sometimes spoke candidly about the event. In the early 1960s, he accepted a position as chair of the journalism department at Baylor. And in 1964, he shared his story with a student body during a morning chapel service. And he continued to do this for several years until the memory just became too much for him. But an interesting thing about Chevens is that he credited the tragedy with inspiring him to become a writer. In the mid to late 1960s, he described this in a letter to Jack Castlaw's mother, Janie. He wrote, I too was a passenger in that bus, but the Lord spared my life. From that day to this, I have felt an obligation and challenge to dedicate my talents in writing for the good of mankind. Chevens wrote this letter shortly after Janie made a gift to Baylor to construct the Castlaw building which still houses the Journalism, Media, Arts, and Communication Studies departments in honor of her son, Jack. You know, a tragic tale like this needs a little sunlight. I seem to remember a story about one of the cyber survivors who fell in love with his nurse. Yeah, that's a great story. Wesley Bradshaw received serious back injuries during the accident and resulted, that resulted in surgery a few weeks later. And that was followed up by five months of recovery in and out of hospitals. But during this time, he met and fell in love with his nurse, a woman named Nola Knight. And they eventually married. And another nice part of the story actually involves Coach Wolf. If you remember, his wife was very pregnant the day they left for the UT game. Oh, yeah. And when, when Coach Wolf finally returned home, four days later, I might add, he got to meet his second child, a son named Ralph. And one of the survivors named his son after one of the victims. That's right. After the accident, Kiefer Strickland sent several letters to his friend Robert Hanna's mother. In the letters, he described his grief and emotional weight of being a survivor. He wrote, Yes, I am tired of school. I have been ever since the accident. There has never been anything to take the heart out of me so much as that. I do hope I can find some sort of recompense. The great thing is that he finally found his recompense 17 years later when he named his son Robert Hanna Strickland. Oh, that's nice. What can you tell us about the other survivors' hands? Do we know what they did with their lives? We do know. Um, it's not a surprise that several of the men pursued teaching and coaching careers. Kiefer Strickland taught and coached basketball at Sunset High School in Dallas. Gordon Berry went on to serve as a superintendent in the Hondo Independent School District. Wesley Bradshaw taught and coached at the high school and college levels, including a stint as head football coach at Wachita Baptist College. Cecil Bean served as principal of Irvin High School in El Paso. Some of the other survivors enjoyed interesting careers as well. Fred Ackery enjoyed a long career as a scientist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Lewis Slade found success in the saddle-making business. Ware Washam coached the freshman football and basketball teams at Baylor for one year after graduation before moving on to the high school level. But perhaps the most famous was John Kane, 
who became a B-24 bomber commander and was awarded the Medal of Honor for his role in Operation Tidal Wave, a large-scale bombing raid on Nazi forces in Romania during World War II. John Killer Kane. You know, we ought to do a show on him someday. He's a heck of a story. I know that Coach Wolf enjoyed a long career at Baylor in the athletic program. His name is all over programs from that era. But this is kind of new to me. Many people might not realize that he was also the mayor of Waco during the devastating 1953 tornado. Yeah, you know, that's one of life's eerie coincidences. Coach Wolf stayed at Baylor for almost three decades until 1954. And during that time, he served in a variety of roles, including director of athletics. But he also served as a vice president and general manager of the Baylor Stadium Corporation, which was ultimately responsible for construction of the university's football stadium. And in 1932, he led the men's basketball team to its first conference championship. So 20 years later, he was elected as mayor in 1952, and a year after that, a devastating tornado ripped through and destroyed much of Waco's downtown area. And it would seem that fate placed the city in Wolf's capable hands, according to the Waco Tribune-Herald, which published an editorial that read, in part, Ralph Wolf took his rightful place at the head of disaster work with extra energy and zeal from his own rugged personality. It was a most fortunate meeting of man and destiny. Indeed. Every year at Baylor's massive homecoming festivities, the story of the Immortal Ten is told to the freshmen at their mass meeting. Do you know how that tradition started? Well, according to legend, the freshman mass meeting started at homecoming in 1928 as a way to honor the Immortal Ten and review other Baylor traditions. And no one knows for sure if this emphasis remained after those initial years, especially during World War II when homecoming was suspended. But in 1947, the story gained a new place of prominence at Baylor. The freshman mass meeting was led by Yale leaders and dedicated to the memory of the Immortal Ten. What's interesting is that the story was repeated the following morning in chapel as a live radio drama. Oh, really? The dramatization was written by Edgar Will, who taught in the radio department and was produced and directed by a speech student named Eddie Fadal. The production included sound effects and background organ music. It was narrated by two men with various seniors playing the roles of the Immortal Ten. And the freshman mass meeting is still alive, and each homecoming, a new group of freshmen learn about this important story in Baylor's history. You know, the phrase itself, the Immortal Ten, has an iconic quality about it. Do you know who was the first to use it? Well, the first use of the phrase that I could find is credited to Jack Hawkins of the Waco Tribune Herald. On January 23, 1927, he wrote, Though death's icy fingers have written fini across the life of each of the immortal ten who are today mourned, their memory will never perish. The university newspaper, The Lariat, followed suit the following day with the headline, Memorial Services Held for Mortal Ten. This phrase has remained intertwined with the tragedy for more than 83 years. One last story. What can you tell us about Clyde Abe Kelly, one of the ten victims of that sad day? Well, just before the train crashed into the bus... Ware Washam jumped out of the window. A few of the other survivors, including John Kane, claimed that Abe Kelly actually gave Washam the push he needed to make it out in time. Naturally, this tale of heroism quickly made its way into the newspapers. The Dallas Morning News wrote, Kane said Kelly deliberately pushed Washam out of a rear window of the bus when the train was seen bearing down on the bus and the diminutive Baylor athlete was thus saved. Kelly could have jumped himself, but he, ref but he preferred to give the open window to his friend. Over the years, legend has grown about Kelly's bravery. And like most legends, it's unknown whether or not he really pushed Washam out of harm's way, but I'd like to think so. I think so, too. Today, at the center of Baylor's campus, located between Pat Neff Hall and the Bill Daniels Student Center, 
stands the Immortal Ten Memorial. What can you tell us about this dramatic scene? Well, this display is a fairly recent addition to the Baylor campus landscape. It was installed on June 22, 2007 in Tradition Square. The memorial contains four life-size bronze statues with the remaining six athletes encased in a 10-by-8-foot bass relief panel. Standing in front of the nine is Abe Kelly, who, as we said before, is remembered for his final heroic act. The bricks surrounding the steps were taken from Brooks Hall, which had been the collegiate home of Ivy Foster Jr., Willis Murray, and James Walker. The monument was created by renowned Western sculptor Bruce Green of Clifton. It took more than 10 years to raise the necessary funds for the memorial, but it all started when the class of 1996 decided to donate their senior gift to the project. The classes of 1997 through 2001 also donated their senior gifts too. And a number of university organizations and other individuals also helped to complete the fundraising, including the Baylor Alumni Association, the Baylor Bee Association, the Baylor Chamber of Commerce, Baylor University Student Life Fund, Baylor Yale Leaders, and the Traditions Fund. And I think that President Brooks would be most proud of this memorial since he had tried unsuccessfully to raise money for a memorial auditorium in tribute to the Immortal Ten. You see, back in 1927, he envisioned a half-million-dollar auditorium with ten marble columns, one for each athlete, as a place to hold chapel services and other university events. He took to the radio and asked for pledges from alumni throughout Texas, but due to changes on the Baylor campus landscape, coupled with the 1928 recommendation to move the University of Dallas, the auditorium memorial never materialized. But the residents of Brooks Hall took it upon themselves to create their own monument, a bronze plaque that they paid for and hung outside the club room in 1927. Located now at the Texas Collection at Baylor, the plaque reads, In memory of our comrades who died for Baylor in the Round Rock tragedy. Hence, over the decades, there have been various accounts of this tragedy. At least I've read several. In your mind, is there a definitive count available to the public? Well, you know, what we've talked about today just barely scratches the surface of a story. But if, you, if you'd like to read an in-depth account, I would recommend a book by Baylor Line magazine editor Todd Copeland titled The Immortal Ten, The Definitive Account of the 1927 Tragedy and Its Legacy at Baylor University. The book actually started out as a feature story in the winter 2002 issue of the alumni magazine he edits. Copeland wanted to tell the most accurate account of the story possible, but as he delved further into his research, he discovered a larger narrative that was just begging to be told. And it was in 2006 when the book was published by the Baylor University Press. Hans, thank you for sharing this moving incident from Baylor's long history with us today. You're welcome, Robert. It's always a pleasure to be able to share stories about Texas history. If you would like to know more about the Immortal Ten, the Texas Collection at Baylor University has an extraordinary collection of related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, maps, and much, much more as one of the country's best collections of Texana. I'm your host, Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism. For more information on the Texas Collection, go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection has been made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by Community Bank and Trust of Waco. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas. <laughs> ¶¶